0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Now, I was told I needed to make a couple of announcements, and I try to do what I'm told. Number one, there's no class here on Thanksgiving Thursday, that night, okay? So everybody doesn't have to worry about getting up and rolling here after you. You know, you can take that time to, <clears throat> as somebody said this morning, I had some pastors here this morning, they said, do we get away with, with gluttony on Thanksgiving Day? Is that not a sin? I said, I don't, I don't think there's freebies. And when you get on into the holidays, we will not have class on Christmas night, which is also a Thursday. But we will have class on New Year's night, which is also a Thursday. Okay, so that takes care of the Thursdays. Now on the Tuesday, December the 11th, which is when pre-trib is going, December the 9th. Tuesday, December the 9th, which is when everybody's going to be gone to pre-trip. There will not be class that night. And those of you who uh, aren't going to pre-trip, if you would like to go, there, we may even have a room or, or need a room. I, I got one pastor who needs a roommate. Now, you may not want a room with a pastor. You know, they can be kind of wild. But So this should be a good conference The banquet speaker on that Monday night is Joel Rosenberg. And Joel Joel Rosenberg has written a number of books. He was writing a kind of a Tom Clancy-type novel called The Last Jihad, and it was ready to go to the printer, I mean to the publisher, when 9-11 occurred. And the main plot line was Arab terrorists hijacked a plane to use to attack America. And he's written two or three other novels, but he's written a nonfiction work called Epicenter, and that is uh, <clears throat> you know just tracking a lot of the trends that are going on in the Middle East. So that's a good thing to be aware of and to read. I'm about a third of the way through it right now, <clears throat> but that's that's good. So that's what's going on now tonight. <clears throat> I'm glad I have some water here. Tonight we're going to get into uh, the first part of Hebrews nine again. But the class is called Corrections and Conclusions. So we're going to correct a lot of stuff you thought you knew about the tabernacle. After four months of studying the tabernacle, you're going to find out it's wrong. So we've got to start over. So before we get started, let's uh, bow our heads together and have a few moments of silent prayer to get started. Then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're thankful we can be here tonight, that we have the opportunity to be encouraged by your word, refreshed by your word, that as we take the time to focus our thinking on that which has uh, eternal stability, the unchanging, immutable, steadfast word of the God, creator of the universe, we pray that as we study these things that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our own Christian life. And that we might come to a greater understanding of, of just the totality of your plan and purpose for us and how uh, the basic mechanics of the spiritual life from dispensation to dispensation remain the same. So, Father, we pray you guide and direct our thinking tonight. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. And we're going to start looking at these verses and work our way through verse by verse, which is our normal plan. And this is a starting to move into an exhortation section. I think chapter 9 is a transition from chapter 7 and chapter 8, which we're talking about the shift in the covenant from the old covenant to a new covenant established uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ, which establishes a new priesthood. And now the writer concludes or begins Now, even the first covenant, which was the Mosaic Law, had regulations of divine worship. And the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle. So now what he's doing is he's going to go back to the tabernacle regulations for worship. And he's going to develop those and make application for the church age. Even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For explanation of the earthly sanctuary, there was a tabernacle, that is a dwelling place, Prepared The outer one, he's going to talk about an outer one and an inner one. What we call the holy place is the outer room or vestibule, and then the inner room is the holy of holies, the holy place and the holy of holies. There was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle. So he's viewing this as two tents or temporary dwelling places. There There was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, tonight is corrections and conclusions. We have to go back and just wrap up some things that we've studied on the tabernacle that are misconceptions, and some things it's just so obvious, it's sort of like, why didn't I ever do this before? And the first thing we're going to learn is that A brazen altar never existed. Never did. Yeah. Brazen altar never existed. You'd think after all these years that someone would take the time to just look up the word brazen. Brazen is an English word that means it's made of brass. That's not what the Hebrew word means. This entered into... English translations back during the middle, late Middle Ages, probably with the original Tyndale translation and then uh, with the King James Version, because about 80% of the words used in the King James Version came out of the Tyndale. The Hebrew word is nechoshet, which means it's made of copper or bronze, not brass. Bronze is a metal alloy made up of copper and tin, Brass is made up of copper and zinc. Brass is not found in the Middle East until the intertestamental period. So it was a bronze altar. In fact, most of your modern translations have all fixed this. And there's even some that in the heading, where, which is the, the, whoever edits the, the study Bible in the little italics heading where they give you an outline, they'll call it the brazen altar. But then they use the word bronze all the way through. And if you go back and listen to the lessons I did on it, I would switch between bronze and brazen. And so many people think that brazen means bronze. It doesn't. So we have to clean up everything. <laughs> and I, I finally, that's the beauty of being able to go off to someplace like Goodseed and teach in an intense, intensified way with no other distractions, so something you've already taught because you get back, get to go back. And kind of chase down all these little details that somehow just got away from you when you were teaching it the first time because you didn't have time to to run it all down. And I kept thinking about this for three days before. And went when I got on the airplane, I got out of my computer and that was the first thing I checked. And I, when I told John Cross about that, he just sort of stopped. He went he went to grab grab his book Stranger on the Raid on the road to Emmaus, and he said, I've got to change it. Because it'd have brazen in one place and bronze in another. And it just it's all through the literature. It's in your Bible encyclopedias and your Bible dictionaries. And it's just this thing that we picked up from the King James Version. The King James Version consistently calls it brass. But it's not brass, it's bronze. But that is while well, that is interesting in itself. There is a spiritual application. Now one other just archaeological note. It's been discovered that in the middle second millennium B.C., which is about 1400-1500 B.C., roughly the time of the Exodus, that the Phoenicians, the, you know, coming out of the area around Tyre and modern Lebanon, and they sailed all over the ancient world, there's evidence that they had several tin mines operating in Cornwall in southwestern England and they would mine the tin, and then they would bring it back to the area of the Levant around the uh, Mediterranean in order to uh, make bronze. And remember, it was called the, what was the age that preceded the Iron Age? The Brass Age, right? No, it was the Bronze Age. (laughs) So that's, that's the era. So it's a bronze altar. And I really had to work hard all weekend trying to make sure I didn't say brazen altar. So it's a bronze altar. Now, why was it bronze? You ought to remember this. Why was it bronze? Both articles of furniture in the outer courtyard are made of bronze. Now, that was interesting. because I, Why are they both made of bronze? The And the, all the furniture inside the tabernacle is made of gold over acacia wood. But the metal that's used in the outer courtyard is bronze over acacia wood. So that all of that... Blending of the metal and the wood speaks of something about the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his humanity and his deity. But the bronze on the bronze altar is there because bronze can handle the heat that gold can't handle. Gold will melt. So the bronze handles the heat, which is a picture, as I taught, of the Lord Jesus Christ being able to handle the heat of our, of the punishment for our sins on the cross. So bronze speaks. Also of judgment. Now we're going to go to the next piece of furniture that's in the outer courtyard and that was the labor. This isn't a correction, this is an addition because once I started focusing on that, something else occurred to me. You have the bronze altar that is made for washing. And it's put between the bronze altar and the tent, according to Exodus 30, 17, and 18. But in Exodus 38, 8, we read, Moreover, he made the labor of bronze with its base of bronze from what? From the mirrors of the serving women who served in the doorway of the tent of meeting. So you have three things about the labor. Number one, it's bronze, and bronze speaks of judgment. It's made of the shiny, polished metal that the women use for mirrors. Now, in the ancient world, they used silver, and they used copper, and they used bronze, and they used gold, uh, a variety of metals for mirrors. But they took only the bronze mirrors, which tells me that that was important, that it was bronze. So the bronze speaks of judgment. The mirror speaks of what? When you look in the mirror, you see yourself. It's self-analysis, self-examination. Paul uses the word examine yourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So there's judgment, there's self-examination, and then there's the water for cleansing. These are the elements that you have in confession of sin. There is self-reflection and self-judgment, and then we confess our sins, and there is cleansing. So you have this tremendous picture of the whole process and significance of confession that has to be gone through before the priest can go into the tent of meeting itself, otherwise he 's going to die. God just makes it very clear that confession or cleansing from ongoing sin is is very important so it 's self judgment self judgment self reflection self analysis confession cleansing now that takes us to the next element the uh, my um, Third, uh, second point that we're going to get a little clarification on. There is an order in the offerings. Now, when you go back way back to May when I did the offerings that were performed at the bronze altar, there are five offerings that are mentioned in in Leviticus chapters one through actually one through six. You first of all, there is the there's the burn offering, the Ola, from the Hebrew word Allah, meaning to go up. I've noticed that current. Uh, writers on the subject are calling this the ascension offering because the focus is on that which goes up. Everything was consumed on the altar. And the picture there is that the, the offerer is stating symbolically that, that all that he has, all that he is, it belongs to God. So there's a statement of commitment. But even more, even more basic than that is the whole concept of substitutionary atonement that is pictured by everything that happens on the, on the bronze altar, that Christ died in our place, and it's a reflection upon the fact that who we are and what we have is because Christ died for us. Okay, so we're at the bronze altar, and the bronze altar has these, these five sacrifices, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the guilt offering, and the trespass offering. Those were the five offerings. Now, the first three, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the uh, peace offering were sweet savor offerings. And the last two were non-sweet savor offerings, and they had to do with primarily willful sin. Now, I'm going to challenge you tonight. It's eight, sixteen, seventeen, 17, and we're going to come back to dealing with these inadvertent sins versus uh, willful sins or sins of the high hand when we get to the last point. But the last two really dealt with inadvertent sins and physical uncleanness. They didn't deal with willful sins or what is called in the text sins of the high hand. And Moses sin, when he got angry the second time he was to uh, he was the, the, the children of Israel, right before they went into the land when they complained about the lack of water, And rather, God, the second time, first time, remember, they're coming out of Egypt, and God said, strike the rock. The second time, he said, speak to the rock. But Moses lost his temper with the people, and he got angry. It's not so much that he struck the rock, although there's a lot of people who want to make a typology there. It is that he got angry, and he raised his hand. And the terminology that's used there is the same kind of same basic terminology and idiom you have for the term sin of the high hand. He gets mad, he raises his hand, and he strikes the rock, and he is willfully disobedient to God. And so that's the sin that is the reason he cannot go into the into the promised land. So we have to answer the question, if the guilt offering and trespass offering take care of inadvertent sins, what takes care of the sins of the high hand? We'll think about that. Okay, so you have these these sacrifices. Now, the interesting thing is every time you go through uh, Leviticus and Numbers and on into Samuel and Kings, and you're dealing with these different sacrifices, they don't appear in the order that you have them revealed. That is a logical order. The burnt offering is, is logically the foundational offering. The others are all variants of that. So it's logically laid out in Leviticus, burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, and then your guilt and trespass offering. But every single time you see more than one of those in operation, it's always first the sin offering, then the burnt offering, and then the fellowship offering, the peace offering. Why is it done in that order? So it 's the same thing we do every time we 're going to pray and we get back in fellowship. First, we have to confess our sins. there 's uh, an admission there 's got to be cleansing from the sin. So the sin offering pictures that, and we recognize first John one seven says that the blood of Christ continually cleanses from all sin. Now that doesn 't mean that you don 't have to confess your sin. Some people take it that way that, oh, you know, there's some guy, Bob George, who's been on the radio since I was in seminary, and his whole ministry is built on telling people you don't have to confess your sin. And he gets everybody all confused. And he always goes to 1 John 1 7 and says, See, 1 John 1 7 says, The blood of Christ continually cleanses you from all sin. I've heard this from other people. Well, if the blood of Christ continually cleanses you from all sin, you don't need to do anything else, then what's John talking about two verses later? Is he just stupid? Does he just all of a sudden have a, he's older and he just forgets that he just said the blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin, now he's going to tell you you have to confess your sins to be cleansed. No, he's laying out the positional reality, which is what happens at the altar in the Old Testament, that every time the priest went in, he is he has to perform the sin or guilt offering and confess because it's a it's a picture of the fact that what, ultimately covers us and cleanses us is the death of Christ on the cross. But then what does he have to do? He also has to go to the he goes to the labor and he has to wash his hands and his feet. So they, they work together both depict different aspects of the whole process of confession of sin. So first there's the sin offering and then there's the burnt offering and the burnt offering is a picture of the fact that, you know, we don't say this when we confess our sins, but this is sort of the 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 what what's implied in the process. We're saying, Father, I just committed this sin. This sin is covered by the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, and I'm I'm confessing my sin because I want to be in fellowship with you, and I recognize that if I'm going to Live my life so it has any kind of spiritual or eternal value, then I have to live it totally committed to you. Now we don't say it like that, and I'm not using commitment there in the way that the, uh, you know, the revivalists do, but that's, that's what's implied there, and that's what's depicted in the, in the burnt offering. And then the next offering is the peace offering, which pictures fellowship with God. So it, it just pictures what we've been learning all our lives is that you have to confess your sins to have fellowship with God. And when you confess your sins, it is a recognition that you, you, you know you can't live walking by the flesh and you have to be uh, filled with the Spirit. So those three offerings work together and they're always in that same order, always in that same order. And that is such a tremendous picture of the necessity for confession of sin before fellowship. And then you have the whole imagery of what happens as you go into the tent. Remember, those outer two things are both made of bronze, and what's inside the tent is made of gold. Those outer two things speak of judgment. What goes on outside of the courtyard has to do with getting back in fellowship so that you're back in right relationship with God. Well, after there's been that reflection on the fact that Christ died for my sins and I'm cleansed, then I go inside the tent. The priest goes inside the tent, and he's inside the tent. And outside, it doesn't look like much because the outer covering was that badger covering, and the outer covering doesn't look that beautiful. Nobody saw it. But once you get inside, there's all that beautiful uh, embroidery work and the and the cherubim and all those brilliant colors. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's on the on the left hand side. You have the uh, golden menorah, which pictures the light of God, the illumination we receive from God from the light of his w- written word and the light from the living word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because, uh, and, and it's, it's teaching that we can't have a relationship with God, we can't worship him, serve him, or learn about him apart from the light that he provides on the one hand and ongoing fellowship, which is pictured by the table of showbread on the right-hand side. So what's happening right there is a picture of the Christian life it's based on the word of God and fellowship with God in the church age the fundamental issue there is going to be the filling of the spirit so that's what we see happening in the pattern of the sacrifices now that it's not what I thought was wrong I'm just bringing out some new elements there but now we have something new that we have to get into in Hebrews 9.3 this is the third point I'm making tonight, and this has to do with a correction, and that is the location of the golden altar, the altar of incense. And in Hebrews 9.3, we read, and I pointed this out when we were studying this early on in the study, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. So now we are going from outside to inside question you have to ask and answer is, what's the perspective here? Where is the person standing who says behind the veil? Is he standing in the Holy of Holies or is he standing outside? He's outside here, okay? And he says, behind the veil, there's a tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And what does it have? It has a golden altar of incense. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, how's that inside the Holy of Holies? Every picture I've ever seen of the tabernacle and the temple has the altar of incense, and every picture I ever used has the altar of incense out in the holy place. But the, did the writer of Hebrews just have a glitch? He uses a preposition metah, which can't mean anything other. It's used with the, uh, in this construction to indicate location, and it's after or behind. So you can't change the meaning. Behind the second veil there is a tabernacle that has a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. So this sets up a major conflict and, and scholars have tried for, uh, over the years to try to figure out what is going on. And I offered one of the, uh, what I thought at the time was the best solution to this is that the, there's such a tight connection between the altar of incense and the ark of the covenant that the the real the function of the altar of incense on the day of atonement is that as the priest brings incense to burn on the on the coals of the, of the altar of incense it's supposed to fill the holy of holies with smoke to the extent that he can't get a real clear view of the of the ark lest he die Leviticus 12:13 God says, if you look on, if you have a clear shot, 100% visibility on the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to die. So we have to make sure that the whole Holy of Holies is filled with smoke. So the the function was what I pointed out that and I thought that was the best solution. Well, when I was up in Canada, uh, John Cross and I talked about this a lot, and he said, well, I hadn't heard that take on it. I've just heard the view that because they were they were associated with the Day of Atonement, because the the priest was supposed to put Blood on the on the ark of the covenant, on the mercy seat, and also put blood on the four horns of the altar of incense. That that connects them together, and so they they were just viewed that way. He said, "I like what you say because that that gives it the functionality. It's a little stronger." But he said, "You know, I'm still not satisfied." I said, "Well, I'm not either." So on the way back, I started doing a little work, and then. I guess it was Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning. Was it yesterday? It was Wednesday? Yeah, Wednesday morning, I was working out early in the morning, and I kept thinking about this, and I said, I need to go home, and I need to start digging through these prepositions again in the Hebrew back in Exodus chapter chapter 25. And so I came up with a, uh, another option, but it's not original with me. I mean, I hadn't read anybody else, so I sort of came up with it, but others have as well, and I didn't didn't realize that. But it's not a well-known option. So let's work through this. What we have from the writer of Hebrews is a very clear statement that where he puts the altar of incense in the tabernacle inside the holy of holies. Not in, not out in the, in the holy place. So we have to, uh, figure out what he means by that. Now, one problem that people have is that they come to this thinking about this on the basis of what is said in Hebrews 9.7 in relationship to the work of the high priest. Hebrews 9.6 says, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests, that's all the Levitical priests, not the high priests, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, that is, into the Holy of Holies, Only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And so we read that, and what we see it saying is that the high priest can only go into the Holy of Holies once a year for the Day of Atonement. He can't go in there any other time. Now, what's interesting is that word only. That word only is the Greek word monos. And it is an adjective. And in Greek, just like Spanish or French or German, the adjective has to agree with the noun in case, number, and um, and, gen- and gender, or at least case and number. Now, year has a different word with it. It has the word hapox, which indicates once, once a year. But the only is a masculine nominative. And year is a masculine genitive. So the only isn't talking about only once a year. It's talking about only the high priest can go in there on the Day of Atonement, which is the focus of Hebrews 9. And what the writer is saying is only the high priest can go in on the Day of Atonement and do this. He's not talking about the fact that the high priest can, can only go in to that room once a year. There's another problem. That we have, and that's seen in the verse in, I just keep getting the same thing. No, I didn't get it in there. Leviticus. Leviticus 16, 2 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. Serious punishment. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now that also appears to mean that the high priest, can he can't go in there at any time. But is God saying in the context of Leviticus 16, which is the regulations on the Day of Atonement, is God saying you can't go in there at any time or you can't go in there at any time and do the ritual of the Day of Atonement? Is the at any time related to the function of the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement or is it related just as a universal principle that you can only go in there on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? And I think that the context indicates that it's only—it's saying that he can only do the Yom Kippur sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He can't do that at any time because there's, when there's sin offerings, there's a suggestion. You can't, you can't be dogmatic about it, but there's an indication that the sin offering, he's got to go into the, for the, for the sin offering of the high priest, he has to go into the Holy of Holies. Okay, so let's let's stop a minute and see where we're going here. What this does is it sets up a problem that we have to resolve by some close analysis of Scripture. And there are several, as I've pointed out, there are several different solutions that are made are attempted. One is the idea that that it's because of the close association with the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, and because the function is related to the Holy of Holies, the writer of Hebrews is is saying that that. But he's using a preposition of location, and it's, it's awfully strong if, if the altar is out in the holy place and he's just talking about the smoke going into the holy of holies. One of the reasons that we look at it this way is that uh, we have examples from the first century of Philo of Alexandria, who was a Jew in northern Egypt, and Josephus, who both state that the altar of incense in the second temple, that's what's important, in the temple they saw that the altar of incense was in the holy place. But what I'm going to argue is that that was true for the second temple, but it wasn't true for the Solomon's temple and it wasn't true for the tabernacle. Now, the other option you have, which I've just sort of dismissed, is that the writer of Hebrews is completely unfamiliar with how the temple is laid out, and that just doesn't fit the scenario. He knows too much detail about other things. So you can't say, well, he's just a, an Alexandrine Jew, and so he's ignorant. Franz Dalich of the Kylan Dalich Commentary fame said uh, he would have been a, it would have been a monster of ignorance and forgetfulness to be capable of such a mistake. Now, there's another way in which this is handled. And that is because the Greek word that's used there to translate, to translate the uh, altar—I mean, the ark—the of, of altar of incense—isn't the normal word for altar of incense. The normal word that is translated altar of incense is the word thusiasterion. but what, the word that you have here is thumiamatas. So some people have said, well, see, and that word is translated censer in some places. But the problem here, I mean, let me back up. The problem here is that in Hebrews 9.4, it's called a golden altar of incense. But if that word translated altar, which is sometimes used for censer, should be translated censer, then it would be the golden censer. And a censer is a firepan. That's what you carry the hot coals in from the bronze altar inside to the altar of incense. But there were no golden censers or golden firepans in the tabernacle. They only had bronze firepans to handle the heat. You didn't have gold. You didn't have gold until you got into the temple. So... That sets up a problem, but you also have a realization that both Josephus and Philo used the term for censor to talk about the altar of incense. So it's a word that was used as a synonym for altar. Also, in the 2nd century versions of the Old Testament, the 2nd century Greek versions of Exodus 30, of Theodotion and Symmachus, they both used the word for censor. For the altar of incense. And the Septuagint uses both words for the altar of incense, call, calling it the Thusiasterion Thumiamatas. In other words, it, both words are used in the Septuagint to describe the altar of incense. And then in the end of the first, uh, second century, into the early third century, both Clement and Origen used the term uh, Thumiaterion. Uh, to refer to the altar of incense. So Thumiamatas is the word for censer, and thusiasterion, I think I got the reversed a minute ago, thusiasterion is the word for altar. And Clement and Origen use the word for censer as a synonym for the word for altar. So there's just because it uses a word that can be translated censer doesn't mean anything due to the fact that there is this, this usage going on. Now, let's look at the Old Testament for a minute. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26, 34. God is giving Moses instructions on how to arrange things, the furniture in, in the tabernacle. In Exodus 26, 34, he says, You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the Holy of Holies. The mercy seat was just the lid. Where's my Ark of the Covenant over here? Set those up here. Here's the Ark of the Covenant. This is The, the mercy seat is just a solid gold, gold lid, one piece that sat right on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So God is saying, put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony of the Holy of You shall set the table... Outside the veil. Okay, now listen. Where are you standing if the table of showbread is outside the veil? What's the perspective here? You're inside the Holy of Holies. That is crucial to this. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south and you shall put the table on the north side. Now, For some reason, my I got didn't get things right in there. Let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 30. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. While you're turning there, let me explain the structure of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 26, in Exodus chapter 26, it begins with a just God telling Moses how he's going to get all of the how he's basically going to raise the money and get all the materials to build the, uh, to build the ark. Exodus uh, 25. The offerings begin the first nine verses. And then he describes the construction of the Ark of the Covenant down to verse 22. Then he describes the construction of the Table of Showbread in verses 23 to 30. Then he describes the construction of the golden lampstand, the golden menorah in verses 31 down to 40. What's he left out? And talked about the, the, uh, Altar of incense yet, then he starts talking about the 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 veils, all the curtains, all the fabrics in chapter twenty six, all the way down through uh, the end of chapter twenty six. Then chapter twenty seven, we're outside, we're in the with the altar of uh, the bronze altar, and then there's the outer court and the outer court hangings, and then there's uh, descriptions of care for the lampstand. And then chapter 28 talks about the priesthood and his ephod and his robes and his breastplate and the other priestly garments. And in chapter 29, we talk about Aaron and his sons being consecrated to the priesthood and instructions on the daily offerings. And it's not until we get to chapter 30 that it talks about the altar of incense and the bronze labor. They're separated from the other furniture. Now, what's important The other thing that's important to understand here is there is a reason why the the description of the tabernacle begins with the most important piece, because the focal point of the tabernacle is on our worship of God. So it starts with the Ark of the Covenant. So the orientation, this perspective, is from the uh, Ark of the Covenant, which is at the center of the Holy of Holies. Now, look down to chapter 30, verse 1. You shall make an altar to burn incense, to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its width. So it's not very big. It's, it's the tallest thing in there, as I pointed out before. It's a foot and a half wide. I mean, a foot and a half square, and it's about three feet high. Then look down to verse six. You shall put it. Now the New King James says you shall put it before the veil that is before the Ark of the Testimony. Now, where are you standing? You're standing, at the, the perspective is from the Ark of the Covenant, but it's not before the veil. The Hebrew preposition there is, the prepos- it's a compound of, the, of la plus pana. Pana means face, and so it's to the face of or in front of. So it should be translated, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're standing in the middle of the Holy of Holies and the table of showbread is outside the veil and the altar of incense is in front of the ark, where is it in relation to the veil? It's inside the Holy of Holies. When this should be translated, you shall put it in front of the veil, not behind the veil. Behind the veil would be over in the holy holy place. So it's in front of the veil that is... Before or in front of the Ark of the Covenant, when you have that same phrase in front of used in Leviticus 20, uh, excuse me, Leviticus 16, it's used in the description of what the priest does on the Day of Atonement. He goes into the Holy of Holies and he puts blood on the mercy seat and then he uh, splatters blood seven times in front of the mercy seat. Same preposition, same phrase. Where is in front of the mercy seat? It's in the Holy of Holies. It's not in the other room. So when it says in front of the, Holy of, in front of the uh, mercy seat, it's right there. There is, there is the uh, close proximity between these uh, two things, the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Now Aaron is supposed to burn incense on it, a perpetual incense, and he is to go in there every morning and every night. And notice, uh, verse nine, he says, "You shall not offer strange incense on it. You're not going to go get the incense and the coals from someplace else. Uh, you're going to get it from the from the coals from the burnt offering that are out of the bronze altar, uh, bronze altar." And then verse ten, and Aaron shall make atonement upon its horn. On the altar of incense, the four horns, that's these four things on the corner here that indicate the direction of the prayers, and horns usually stand for power, and it would be the power of the intercessory prayer. So Aaron is also, once a day on the Day of Atonement, going to put blood on the horns of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement on it throughout your generations. It's most holy to the Lord. Okay, so what I've said is that the Exodus passage indicates because the perspective is from inside the Holy of Holies, that when it talks about putting the altar of incense in front of the veil, it means right there in the Holy of Holies. Now, let's turn over to Leviticus chapter four. Leviticus chapter four. Leviticus 4 is talking about the procedures for the sin offering. And it begins with the sin offering for the priest. You have sin offering for different levels of people within the society of Israel, and the priest is the most important, and so the instructions come out at the beginning. Uh, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a person sins unintentionally, so the sin offering had to do with dealing with unintentional sin inadvertent sin, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, first example, if the anointed priest sins bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish is a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Now what does that mean? That means he comes to the front entryway outside the holy place and he presents the sacrifice he doesn't kill it he offers it he sets it up before God see here Lord here's a sacrifice that fits your qualifications he brings the bull to the door of the tabernacle meeting before the Lord then he lays his hand on the bull's head identification of his sin and he kills the bull before the Lord then the anointed priest will take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting meeting the priest will dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. Where is in front of the veil? We saw that same term in, in Exodus. In front of the veil, Now a lot of people say he goes into the holy place and he just splatters it on the ground. But I think that what he's doing, because he's the high priest and because it's his sin he, he goes into the altar of incense, which is in the Holy of Holies, and he is splattering the blood in front. It's, it would be the same ground. If you've got the Ark of the Covenant here and the altar of incense here, now there's the holy place, and I come in here, I'm, and I'm the high priest, and I'm splattering the blood seven times on the ground, it's in the same place, right? It's not that big in there, folks. You're going to be splattering the blood in the same place. And this is the sin offering for for the priest. Now, let's go to the Day of Atonement. Just turn over a few chapters to Leviticus chapter 16. This is the other element in this. And this is an important element. In the process of all the things that he has to do on the Day of Atonement, After he has the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people, and he begins the process of sacrificing the goat he hadn't sent out, the scapegoat yet, it's right in the middle of the process. He shall take a fire pan or a censer full of coals, a fire from the altar before the Lord. Now, what altar is that? That's the bronze altar. He shall take the fire from the altar, from the bronze altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, bringing inside the veil. So now he's inside the Holy of Holies. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord. Pretty clear where he is, isn't it? He's inside the Holy of Holies. He shall put the uh, incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Now, if the altar of of incense is out in the holy place, and there's a veil between the altar, between the holy place and the holy of holies, it's going to be a lot smokier in the holy place than it is in the holy of holies. Right? But we have an even greater problem. Hold your place there and go to 1 Kings. We've been there a few times lately. Isn't it interesting how all this stuff just sort of starts coming together? You go to first Kings chapter six, which describes the construction of the temple. First Kings chapter six. And we're going to start at verse eighteen. The inside of the temple was cedar. So that's the inside of the main center building, which is comparable to the tent of meeting. The inside of the temple was cedar carved with ornamental buds and open flowers and all the cedars and no stone to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple. Inner sanctuary means holy of holies. He prepared the holy of holies. So what's he talking about in verse 19? Holy place or holy of holies? Holy of holies. He prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. Verse 20, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits by 20. What's he talking about in verse 20? The Holy of Holies. It's 20 cubits by 20 cubits or 30 feet by 30 feet and 30 feet high. And he overlaid it with pure gold, overlaid the altar of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the Holy of Holies and overlaid it with gold. What's he talking about? What room? The Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies 19, Holy of Holies 20, Holy of Holies 21, 22. The whole temple he overlaid with gold, that's outside, until he finished all the temple. Also, he overlaid the gold, the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. Where is he now? He's back in the Holy of Holies. Where's the altar? It's in the Holy of Holies. He never talks about the holy place at all here. Then what's really interesting is he talks about these two huge uh, 15-feet wingspan cherubs that he puts inside the um, Holy of Holies. And then skip down to verse 31. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, that's the Holy of Holies, he made doors of olive wood, wood, doors, walls, not a veil, The word veil is never used, paraket is never used in 1 Kings, not once. There's no veil in the Solomonic temple. So now you have two rooms separated by a wall with a big wooden door. If the altar of incense is in the holy place, how much smoke is going to get into the holy of holies? None. Not unless they cut a ventilation shaft, but then it's going to be real hard to figure out how to get enough smoke in there so we can't see the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant. So see, we've just been wrong all this time. Now, when I started working my way through this and looking at this, I decided to do something that I had done it through one source but I had not done it in another source. I wanted to search all my Hebrews commentaries, and I picked up a few more since then in, in my Logos program to see where what was said about Hebrews 9.3 and behind the veil. And what I discovered was that there were two commentaries that wrote in detail about this and took this same position. One was written by somebody at Dallas Seminary named Dwight Pentecost, who's now 93 years old and still teaching the Bible at Dallas Seminary and that's Dr. Pentecost's view, is the altar of incense in the tabernacle and in the Solomonic temple was in the Holy of Holies. It was not in the holy place. Now, what happens is when the Jews come back from captivity and Zerubbabel builds the temple, there's something that's missing. Remember what was missing? They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant may have been buried directly below the foundation stone, but they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. So if they don't have the Ark of the Covenant, they aren't concerned about all the smoke filling up the Holy of Holies. So they probably just put the altar of incense into the holy place, which is where it was in 63 BC when Pompey uh, conquered Jerusalem, and he wanted to see the Ark of the Covenant, so he marched into the... uh, into the temple and into the holy of holies, and he said it was just an empty, dusty room. Nothing there. So, in the second temple, the altar of incense is in the holy of Hol- a holy place, but not in the holy of holies, uh, as it was in the first temple, and also in the in the tabernacle. So, that gives us a slightly different perspective. Now, why is it there? It's there because in the process of the Day of Atonement, there is this intimate connection between the ongoing prayer for Israel, pictured by the incense, and the blood of the, on, the, on the mercy seat. Because on the Day of Atonement, once a year, every year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, and he puts blood on the mercy seat, splatters it seven times on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and then he puts blood on the four horns of the altar of incense because that it's that picture of that blood, the death of Christ, that is the foundation for prayer and for uh, propitiation. So they link together there. Okay, now, fourth point. Fourth point has to do with the order of events on the Day of Atonement. Now I have taught this 3 times now. Maybe I'll get it right this time. When I taught this 3 or 4 weeks ago, you get half you, you, it's terrible when you're you got 9 points, they did it this way, you worked over it, over it and you get halfway teaching you go, "Wait a minute, I know I missed it." So I redid everything, thought I had it right, missed it the other night when I taught it. Had a, but I didn't miss it by much. When I went back and looked at it, I only had one thing out of order. So we're going to try it one more time. The Day of Atonement is described, the actions of the priest are described in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. This is the center chapter, centerpiece of the book of Leviticus is what happens on the Day of Atonement. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Remember, that was Abihu and Nadab because they brought the strange fire into the, uh, into the altar of incense. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the Holy of Holies inside the veil before the mercy seat. See, you've got to have before the mercy seat in there. He can't come at just any time related to the mercy seat sacrifice. There's only one time a year he can do that, and that's on Yom Kippur. So, when he comes in in Yom Kippur, the first thing he has to do is he has to select a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And that's what's indicated in verse 3. Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a bull offering as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. But see, he, that's not the first thing that happens. He doesn't sacrifice them first, that's what gets confusing. This is just a summary of the basis for his being able to do all this is the shed blood of those two things because it's not until you get down to verse 11 and afterwards that he actually sacrifices them. So it's easy to get confused. So Aaron has to go, the basis is the sin offering, the bull for the sin offering and ram for the burnt offering. Notice the order, sin offering first, burnt offering second. Atonement is made in this passage for the to cleanse the furnishings of the tabernacle one time it's mentioned in verse 20. The atonement was made for the high priest himself and his family four times in verse 6, verse 11, verse 17, and verse 24. Atonement was made for the people three times in the chapter in 1610, 1617, and 1624. The other thing you should note as background is all the other feast days of Israel... The Passover, the Feast of Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, uh, the uh, Festival of Booths. These are all celebrations. But Yom Kippur wasn't a celebration. Look down to verse uh, right there at the end and verse 29. This should be a statute... Forever for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. That's not the normal terms you use for a party. You shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest, verse 31, and you shall afflict your souls. It's a day of reflection. It is a day of being somber and thinking about sin and thinking about what God has done for us. Sound like something we do? It's like the like the Lord's table. It's a time for quiet reflection. So the, the Yom Kippur is a day of solemn rest to teach humility. So he comes in, he he offers or presents for approval, as it were, a bull for sin offering, ram for a burn offering. So, I'm going to run through the uh, 14 steps very quickly. First, he gathers the bull for a sin offering and the ram for a guilt offering, goes out and picks them, makes sure they're without spot or blemish, and and then he brings them and, and, as it were, presents them before God. Second, he's to wear the holy linen tunic and undergarments. He doesn't wear his high priestly garb. It's absolutely gorgeous, it is brilliant, it's spectacular, the colors are impressive. But it sets him apart from the people. What does he have to do? He has to take that off. He washes himself, and he just puts on linen garments like everybody else. The thing I thought of was what I say every month when we have the Lord's Table. What the Lord's Table does is it's the the focus of humility for every one of us. Because no matter who we are, no matter how wealthy you are, how poor you are, how talented you are, or how much talent you lack, no matter how smart you are, educated or uneducated, we all have to go to the cross to get saved. Everybody, no matter what your natural talents are, you all get to heaven the same way, and that's trusting Christ. That's what's happening here. He, ju- he has to strip off all the, uh, all the outer manifestations of his office, and he dresses in a very common way in the linen un- undergarments, and then he can move forward. The third thing that happens, he presents but doesn't sacrifice these bulls. So he walks in, he's got the bull and the ram, he goes through the whole washing thing, then he takes them before the uh, tent of meeting for approval, as it were. He offers them, but he, he, uh, uh, but he does not sacrifice the bull as a sin offering for himself in verse 6. He doesn't sacrifice it until verse 11. And he presents it to make purification or atonement for himself and his family. Then, having done that, he goes back out, he gets two goats. One will be the scapegoat, and one will be the sin offering. He just brings them in at this point. And um, he also brings with him the ram for the burnt offering. Fifth, next he sacrifices the bull as the sin offering. In verse 11, and he sacrifices the bull as a sin offering for himself and his household. The ram's still alive. The two goats are still alive. Now, this has all been outside in the outer courtyard. Now he's going to take his first trip inside. Point number six, then he takes the fire pan, the censer full of coals, and two handfuls of incense to go inside the veil to put the incense on the fire to begin filling the Holy of Holies with a cloud of incense. That's going to take time. Then he goes back out, so he's outside again, second time. Seventh, then he takes some of the blood of the bull, which he's already sacrificed. Now he's got to butcher the bull, and that takes time. having just gone deer hunting and having to done that, I forgot how long it takes. It takes a while. So he has to butcher the bull and he takes the blood of the bull and now he goes inside for the second trip and he puts the blood on the mercy seat and first, On the east side, which is the front side, sprinkles it seven times with his finger just like this on the ground uh, in verse 14. Then he goes out and he's out in the courtyard for a third time. Eighth point, then he sacrifices the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. And now he takes the blood of the goat inside the veil and puts a splatter on the mercy seat and then seven times with his finger in front of the mercy seat for the people. That's in verse uh, verse 15. In verse 16, we read, He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities, the uncleanness of the sons of Israel, and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. Ninth, then he goes back out. This is the fourth time he's out in the courtyard. He goes out and makes purification of the altar, Ah, but what altar is this? Verse 18. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord. What altar is that? That's the bronze altar. And make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Now, most commentators will connect that, putting the blood on the horns of the altar, with Exodus 30. At the end, it said, and once a year on the Day of Atonement, he'll put blood on the horns of the altar of incense. But in Leviticus, there's only one time the word altar means the altar of incense, and it says the altar of fragrant incense at the beginning of Leviticus 4. In the other 80 times that the word altar is used in Leviticus, it refers to the bronze altar. So... What he's saying here is, so what happens is he's going to put blood on the horns of the altar of incense because of the Exodus passage, and he's going to put blood here. This is the purification of the bronze altar, and he'll put blood on the horns of the bronze altar. That was the ninth point. Tenth point, when he finishes all of that, he then takes the live goat, confesses over it all the sins and iniquities of the sons of Israel. That must have taken a while and releases it into the wilderness. That's verse 21. Then, point 11, then he removes his garments, leaves them there, bathes his body completely, puts on his regular priestly garments. Twelve, then he offers the ram as his burnt offering, verse 24. Thirteen, then he offers up the fat of the sin offering from the bull on the altar, verse 25. And fourteen, then the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, that's what's left, are taken outside of the camp, the hides are burned, the flesh and refuse are burned in the fire, and the one who burns them, which isn't the high priest, but probably another priest, the one who burns them then has to wash all of his clothes because they've been identified with this impurity that's on the sin offering, has to take off all of his clothes, wash his clothes, bathe his body completely before he can come back into the camp. So it pictures this complete removal of sin, which is what Christ did on the cross. He completely removes the sin. But what about those intentional sins? See, there were the sacrifices for the unintentional sins. But what about David when he sins with Bathsheba? He has a conspiracy to murder and eventually accomplish it, murdering Uriah. That's a sin of the high hand. He has to go directly to the Lord on the basis of the blood on the mercy seat from the Day of Atonement. That's what covers the sins of the high hand. There's, all, there's a forgiveness for every sin. There's a sin offering and trespass offering for those that are unintentional. But the only thing that handles it is that yearly blood that's put on the mercy seat. Now, all of that is important for when we continue our study in Hebrews 9, which we'll get to uh, next time, and we'll continue to go through this. But we'll review this again and again because that's what Hebrews 9 is all about, is applying that to what is happening in the spiritual life. And we see those patterns there, even though we're not sacrificing, we still need to be cleansed. And our life after salvation is based on understanding the realities of what these Old Testament pictures depict so that we can press on. And that was the problem with the, with the Hebrews is they weren't, they didn't want to press on in their Christian life. Okay, we'll come back to that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time this evening for what we studied, for a little greater insight into the procedures, the process, and just how the uh, tabernacle was set up and to correct some of our misconceptions before. Father, we pray that you would encourage us, because that's the point in all of this, is from Hebrews chapter 9, is that it is to encourage us to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.